Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batia Unger-Sargon. And this is Newsweek's The Debate. You know, we feel very much at Newsweek that our nation is hurting. People are not speaking to family members. People feel divided from those who they love over issues like politics, issues like Trump. We are a nation that feels divided. But the truth is, and this is hard to say because it's hard to realize, so much more unites us than divides us. We are so much more united for the first time probably in our nation's history over the major issues, the most important topics. We really believe that at Newsweek, and it's from that position that we are insisting on debates. We are insisting on disagreements because it is only by tolerating those differences and recognizing and valuing and respecting each other in our different opinions, that we can remember that we are united and we can find that unity. That's what we believe, right, Josh? That is definitely what we believe. And I I would just add to that, one other thing that we believe is, if you look at the current data right now, recent polls show that something close to two-thirds of Americans express that they are not comfortable expressing their opinions in the public sphere. They, we see on, on college campus, college students who openly admit to pollsters that they lie to their professors, they belie their own conscience and submit questions uh, on, on final exams that they do not agree with, but hoping to curry favor because of the predominant lowercase o orthodox discourse that's just taken over like a wet rag and kind of and, and kind of just stopped all of our free disagreement and our disputation and, and our persuasion with. But here at Newsweek, we're actually committed to recovering the lost art of persuasion. We agree that cancel culture is a bad thing. We agree that there should be a wide, robust airing of disagreements, that people should be free to disagree, and that they should be enabled uh, to try to persuade their fellow countrymen, their fellow patriots, as to their own beliefs. And that's already what we're doing at the debate in both the magazine and the website, and it's what we're going to be doing to you here now in audio form as well. And we're just so thrilled to have you along for this ride, something that we think Set us a little bit apart, actually, from our uh, both mainstream media and kind of media in more general, our, uh, our competitors, our colleagues, our, our forebears, our friends, etc. We think this kind of sets us apart because we are genuinely forthrightly and earnestly committed to stretching the Overton window at a time and place and manner that that Overton window is trying to be stifled, lessened, and minimized. But, um, you know, we probably can't bring this to you uh, without you understanding a little bit about who we are. So on that note, Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So speaking of uh, deplatforming and the closing of the Overton window, uh, I'm, I'm coming here from the left. I am a lefty. I've always been a lefty. Um, but I am kind of horrified by what I see taking place in the mainstream media and liberal media and among my liberal friends who have become completely enamored of this view that everyone has to agree that it's dangerous to hear from people who you disagree with. Now, I understand the danger. There is nothing as uncomfortable as realizing that you're wrong, but that is so important. I mean, that is the lifeblood of this nation is being open to persuasion, open to having your mind changed. That's what we're going to try to do here. And, you know, it, it really ties into who I am because I was raised in a very, very disputatious Jewish household where, you know, Friday night Shabbat dinners, we would all get together and argue, you know, and we were bound together by the belief that more united us than divided us and that these arguments, these disputations, these debates 
were the lifeblood of our family and of who we were and reinforced our love for each other. That is the culture that I grew up in that I always thought of as part of the liberal tradition. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to reopen that space for debate. You know, one of the things that happens when you shut down debate is you kind of shut out everybody who's not part of this very, very small elite who has the right opinions. We hate that. We want to open it up. We want to hear from working class people. We want to hear from people who are truly dispossessed, who have been deplatformed, who you don't hear from, who you're not allowed to hear from. We want to hear those dangerous opinions because we're not scared of them because we know that more unites us than divides us. Now, Josh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, what's the old joke? Two Jews, three opinions, maybe four opinions, five, <laughs> five, five opinions these days. Uh, well, here on the, you know, here, here on this show, you're going to get two Jews, maybe like ten or twenty opinions. But um, I, I guess I am this prototypical right wing nut job on this show. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not open to beliefs. Of course, I am very open. Um, but I, I would, you know, much more of a kind of a full spectrum conservative. Um, very much in kind of the national conservative, cultural conservative, um, common good oriented tradition of, of conservatism going back, I would say, centuries at least to Edmund Burke. Um, I'm actually an attorney by training. Uh, went to Duke for college, called Blue Devils. Went to University of Chicago for law school. I know Badia and I have a mutual alma mater there, so go Maroons as well, I suppose. Um, still do a little law on this side. That's kind of my wheelhouse, but definitely interested in kind of the full gamut of issues. What I think Body and I have in common, though, is much more important and much more pervasive and much more obvious than what divides us. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just so excited to, to host this with you. And I know we're going to have some wonderful guests and we're just going to have a really, really, really great time. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to change your mind about everything. Good luck. <laughs> when we come back, stick with us. We are going to hear Professor Michael Eric Dyson of Georgetown. You might remember him from Meet the Press. He's a frequent guest. We're going to have him debate possibly that most sensitive of issues, reparations for antebellum slavery. He's going to do so against David Azrad, professor at Hillsdale College's D.C. Center. There is probably no more fireworks worthy debate in the present public discourse on this one. We've got two very smart, very passionate, very politically opposite voices who will be duking it out in real time. Talk to you soon. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is The Debate, brought to you by Newsweek. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to The Debate, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, we're debating one of the most urgent and controversial topics in American society, reparations for slavery. The topic is actually in the news because a senior advisor to President Biden recently said that the White House could start acting on reparations soon, just weeks after a House committee heard testimony on H.R. 40, which is that bill that would establish a commission to consider reparations. And it's got a lot of Americans thinking and talking about the subject, especially in the wake of the racial reckoning we're going through uh, after George Floyd's death. 
Here to debate this crucial topic are two brilliant thinkers who debated reparations for us at Newsweek. Arguing that America's check to black Americans has bounced and it's time to pay up is Michael Eric Dyson, distinguished professor of African-American and diaspora studies at Vanderbilt University, and arguing the other side that the moral debt for slavery has long been discharged is David Azarad, assistant professor at Hillsdale College's Graduate School of Government. Michael, David, we could not be more thrilled to have you both here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I want to start with you, David, because in your riveting piece, you actually argue that there is a condition under which you would agree with Michael that America should pay out reparations for slavery. So I wonder if you could briefly summarize your argument for us. Sure. I mean, I, I'm opposed to reparations today in 2021. I'm, you know, if we were speaking in 1871, that might be a different argument. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> what I want, my commitment is to America and what's best for the country and for its citizens of all skin colors. And I would be open to an argument for reparations if I could be guaranteed that it would once and for all heal the racial wounds. It would allow us to move beyond the recriminations, the revenge, the distrust, and lead us to the promised land of judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. If we could finally deliver on the promise of making America a meritocracy, where we judge people according to competence and excellence, not the accidents of birth. Uh, I just have zero faith that reparations would lead to that. My firm conviction is that if we enacted reparations, even with the best of intentions, all it would lead to is demands for a second round of reparations. It would lead to more recriminations, more anti-American animus, more anti-white animus, and it would only accelerate this already deteriorating situation we face in this country when it comes to race. So I think that what is best for America right now in these very fraught times when we're at a hysterical pitch on racial grievances and racial recrimination would be to have to set all of this aside and to focus on calming things down. This, I really think, would do no good, and it would do, and, and that's why I think that uh, well-intentioned Americans of all races uh, should reject the, the call for reparations today. Michael, your response? Well, I'm, um, I'm a tickled fancy that my uh, wonderful colleague uh, has uh, ameliorated the uh, petulance of his written response. Um, and moderated it with uh, a bit more civility when it comes to articulating his um, position, one that I think is indefensible in, on many accounts. First of all, you know, it's like stealing somebody's stuff and then saying, hey, the statute of limitations ran out. But Oh, but by the way, we created the laws that said you can't make legitimate claims about the stuff we stole from you. And if you make the claims later on, when there's been a political uh, sea change and the tectonic plates of American race have shifted because of multiple race quakes in the culture, the latest being the George Floyd killing and the uh, onslaught against systemic inequity and racism that it occasioned, uh, it seems to be a bit disingenuous uh, to tie somebody's hands behind their back and then fault them for not fighting. Or as Malcolm X said, you stick a knife in my back nine inches, pull it out six inches and call that progress. So it seems to me that the compelling moral and ethical argument 
for enslavement, something my uh, valued colleague never touched on, uh, the dehumanization of human beings, treating them as chattel. When we do a comparative analysis of many other slave societies, what made this society unique was both the, the thoroughgoing dehumanization that was attached uh, to enslavement and the way in which religion was brought in to legitimate and justify and even validate uh, the vicious impulse toward that dehumanization. Then when you look at the economic and the social and the political uh, circumstances of inequality that resulted, I hear my good colleague when he says, look, I'd like to be done with it. Guess what? Black people and other people of color would love to be done with it as well. We keep trying to get out, you keep pulling us back in. We keep, you know, what's good for America certainly is what's good for black people. What's good for black people has been great for America. Martin Luther King Jr., great for America. John Coltrane, great for America. Hank Aaron, great for America. Toni Morrison, great for America. The struggle for civil rights, great for America. Um, and I would say this in ending. The, the point is, is that slavery didn't end when slavery was ended, right? We know slavery by another name. We know that the arguments about uh, chattel uh, slavery extended onto the plantations of sharecropping, the systemic denial of opportunity to black people. Most black folk in the South, which means most black people in America couldn't vote until 1965. When we talk about access to public accommodations, when we talk about the systemic raping of and pillaging and plundering of culture, we would also love to be done with this. But first of all, you gotta fess up to what you did and then you gotta address what you did and then you got to make good for what happened. And I think morally and re religiously and politically and ethically, that seems to be where we are. So, David, let's have you hop in here. I mean, you know, David, you and I are both uh, students of the Claremont Institute. You know, you and I have both spent a lot of time studying the American founding. I don't think, um, you know, I certainly don't view you as someone who was blind to the complete moral, inexcusable, indefensible atrocities of antebellum chattel slavery. I don't think anyone obviously could read your piece and think that you were blind to those moral evils. I, I take your argument to be more about a, a, what is best for us prospectively rather than retrospectively. So why don't you talk just a little bit about that aspect of your argument, about national healing and how you think this would actually kind of undermine our national ties of unity rather than help, as, as Professor Dyson would say. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point because it goes without saying that no one is denying the barbarism of slavery and what america did to black slaves and this has been documented everyone studies it everyone knows it i don't know anyone who defends it so that goes without saying to me there are three separate issues here one is what does america today in 2021 owe its black citizens because of slavery second is has america sufficiently atoned for the past injustice of slavery and third is even if you think that America still owes its black citizens and that it has insufficiently atoned, would this do good for the country today? And my answer is, I think that America today owes its black citizens what it owes its white citizens, its yellow citizens, its Jewish citizens, and its atheist citizens, which is equality under the law, the 14th Amendment as written and intended, and then broadly speaking, no discrimination in the private sector, but none of this disparate impact analysis, no subconscious bias, no obsession with unequal outcomes as evidence of racism. Second, on the issue of have we atoned for slavery? I mean, I think we did. We fought the bloodiest war in our nation's history to end slavery. Uh, and since the 60s, America has enacted 
uh, systemic racial preferences across the board to help African Americans, i.e. we lower standards at all elite institutions to promote and advance them. And, you know, black Americans have become, uh, for whatever racism may remain, I'm not trying to suggest that everything is rosy and fine, but we, we always focus on the bad. There is, uh, I think, it, it has become the central piety of the regime, never to say anything negative about black Americans, even if it's well-meaning, always to shelter and protect and always to treat them preferentially today at the elite institutions. I'm not saying day-to-day -day interactions. There may be a clerk or a police officer who mistreats someone. But across the board, America today is obsessed, not just with eliminating racism against blacks, but with actively helping them. And then to get to my final point is, you know, even if you disagreed with me, as Professor Dyson does, I would say, look at the climate today. I mean, we're tearing each other apart. 200 cities burned down this summer. There is massive distrust. There's talk of a cold civil war, of a hot civil war, of breaking up the United States. Is this really going to do good to throw more fuel to the fire? If you think of the good of the whole country for all Americans, this is not the right move. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. So, my, Michael, I'd be curious how, how you respond to the, David's point about kind of like America paid its debt in the form of the Civil War, because I hear this a lot from my fellow conservatives. And I, you know, I, I do think back to kind of the very famous concluding line from Lincoln's second inaugural address, you know, the, 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 the almost bone chilling line with malice towards none, with charity for all, et cetera. Um, how would you respond to that? Because that seems to be a, um, an argument, a talking point that I find very frequently on Twitter and, and in lay media and so forth. Right. Well, I'm confused because conservatives have adhered to an undying principle. Speaking of civic piety and speaking of central pieties, one of the shibboleths that has been articulated by many conservatives is, oh, the war wasn't fought for the bloodiest engagement over race and and uh, enslavement, it was fought over states' rights. So that there's a shifting of the onus of responsibility onto the backs of those who claim that race was at the heart of, slavery was at the base of, uh, that what Southern historians call late unpleasantness. So I'm confused. If it was about states' rights, of course, that has always been an engaging argument, but engaging how? because it was deferring responsibility because the state's right to do what? Own enslaved human beings. So the, the Civil War was entered into to protect slavery, not to defeat it. One side did, of course. And those who now identify themselves as conservatives by and large uh, derive a kind of political um, force and navigate with an ethical uh, imperative, uh, I think, chartered by and given to them by uh, the notion that, look, this nation was at war, we fought it, it was a bloody battle, uh, brother against brother, kin against kin. And what resulted, of course, was a society that was relatively equal because we got rid of slavery. Um, it reminds me of a little story with the little kid, you know, who used to tell lies. And every time he told a lie, his father nailed a nail into the board. Every time he told a lie, he nailed into the board till he got full. And then the kid said, well, uh, you know, I I'm going to stop lying. And the father said, every time you stop lying, I'm going to pull a nail out. So he kept, you know, telling the truth. And then finally, all the, the nails are gone. And then the kid is crying. And he says, well, what are you crying for? I pulled all the nails out. You stopped lying. He said, yeah, the nails are gone, but the holes are still there. 
right? The consequences are still there. The impediments, the obstacles, the informal uh, barriers that prevent flourishing. Um, when employers hire people, of course, David is absolutely right in terms of many of the official barriers have been knocked down, but not the informal ones that determine whether or not I hire you. You know, people don't hire folk based on them putting an ad in Newsweek, although that would seem to be quite uh, successful. Uh, they hire people because you look like me. Hey, my kid graduated from Harvard or Hillsdale or Vanderbilt, and good, tell them to come see me on Monday and so on. So we know networks of affiliation that distribute social goods, that confer social value are apparent. So it seems to me when you say we've paid the debt, how so? Martin Luther King Jr. said a nation that has done something special against as we were then called the Negro, for 250 years has got to do something special for them. The Marshall Plan that was talked about by the National Urban League, look at what happened, and I'll end here, look at what happened with, uh, as, as has been pointed out by many other people, with the way in which um, the GI Bill essentially was a gesture of affirmative action, mostly for white men returning from the war of World War II. They got, they got mortgages, they got uh, ability to get a good job, and they got access to education. Now, it's interesting to me, what David say after the GI Bill, they lowered the standard. Look at the unconscious link between racial preference and the implication that the standards were somehow mitigated by acknowledging that there's a hierarchy of intelligence or competence or skill or talent. And as a result of that, those rules had to be abrogated and mitigated in regard to including black people. Now, I am a preacher. I said I was closing, but one more point. When, when, do you realize about four or five years ago, the first basketball player who was black playing professionally for the NBA died? That means in your lifetime and my lifetime and David's lifetime and Badia and Josh and Jesse, that in our lifetime, the first black guy who played basketball professionally um, died, it's, it's, it's within our reach. Are we saying that they lowered the standards in the NBA to allow black people to participate? Is Michael Jordan, he literally is an affirmative action hire. But my God, what a glorious one. Kobe Bryant, what a glorious one. I think we need affirmative action for American-born white guys <laughs> in America to be able to play because all the European white boys are coming over and just mastering this game. So in that sense, I'm empathetic to you and I would talk about what white people need to have in regard to this calculus and metric. This is the debate at Newsweek, and we are debating reparations for slavery with Michael Eric Dyson and David Azarad. So, David, I want to give you a chance to respond to Michael's last point, but I want to sharpen it just a little bit. So you talked about how there are three issues at stake, and the first is the sort of remaining systemic inequalities that Black people face. I, would, I was wondering if you could lay those out as you see them, first of all, to see if, you know, what are the areas that we agree on? What are the remaining issues of systemic racism in this country? And also, how do you propose solving them? Because you suggest that reparations would not help. But I wonder if this is actually a semantic argument. I mean, maybe you su support something like investment in education, which is one of the things that Michael suggests reparations should go to. Um, so why don't you take that up? Um, well, I feel Michael and I haven't been disagreeing enough. So let, let me ramp it up a little bit, <laughs> lest your, your readers be bored. Uh, I first want to point out that, you know, I, I thought this was going to be a debate about reparations for slavery. And Michael's position seems to encompass reparations also for Jim Crow, 
which is a separate issue. I mean, I thought we were here to debate reparations for slavery. Uh, now, to your question, uh, you know, let me make, put it bluntly. The idea that there is anti-Black systemic racism in America in 2021, I find is ridiculous and laughable. It is undeniable that there was systemic, malicious anti-Black racism in America for most of the country's history. That is undeniable. I also do not deny that there is individual racism here and there in America and that there are small-scale uh, shops, uh, churches, residential groupings that may discriminate and be racist. That being said, every single institution of any significant size in this country essentially worships these days at the altar of Black Lives Matter. The churches, the corporations, the universities, the bureaucracies, the unions, um, the media, Hollywood, I mean, the museums, the textbooks. America is the elites across the board are obsessed with eradicating racism against blacks and treating them in a preferential way, i.e. lowering standards to admit and promote them and making excuses for any unacceptable behavior on their part. So when I hear claims of systemic racism, what I would love to know is, where is the systemic racism being taught and learned? Where are the systemic racists being indoctrinated? Is it in the police academies? What evidence do we have that police academies are teaching cops to shoot black citizens at will? All of America is obsessed with this. I, I find it laughable today. So I'm more than happy to have a conversation about the state of black America today and what could we do as well-meaning citizens to help our fellow black American citizens? It's a complicated question. I, I don't claim to have all the answers or any particularly compelling answers, but I think that the prerequisite to having this conversation is moving away from this nonsense that in 2021, there's systemic anti-black racism in America. My dear friend from University of Chicago, Adam Mortara, is actually, he was, the, he was the lead trial lawyer in the current affirmative action lawsuit against Harvard College. And I was looking at the trial court filings in that. I'm a, I'm a lawyer myself. And for the top decile, the top 10% of high school graduating classes, um, the admissions rate to Harvard for Hispanic Americans, it's like 32 or 33%. For black Americans, it was like 45 to 50%. For Asian Americans, it was like nine or 10%. So it seems to me that we're kind of throwing around the term systemic racism. You know, maybe it might apply to Asian Americans in this context as well. So how how broadly, how comfortably should we be using the term systemic racism? Are we overusing it? Are we not using it narrowly or focused enough? Yeah, I'll be glad to answer that. I'm 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 a, a bit taken aback by my good friend David here, good friend already, only ten minutes into the conversation, <laughs> that he didn't answer at all what Batia asked him. He didn't say what was a persistent, malevolent, malicious, even hard issue of racial animus that prevailed. He instead railed against the preposterous to him notion that anti-Black racism persisted. He didn't articulate, therefore, what America could do to resolve that. So interesting uh, absence there. The lacuna needs to be filled by more than gaseous fulmination. It has to have some articulable uh, principles and practices. Now, in regard to um, systemic inequity and racism, and it looks like, of course, it's like saying, hey, because, uh, you know, people X over here got beat up as well as people Y, 
that the issue of people why is therefore invalidated. No, add more, don't subtract. The point is, is that of course, we know that anti-Asian sentiment is deeply entrenched in American culture in many ways. When I hear people make the shift, when they say, well, instead of affirmative action or instead of um, um, you know, reparations for slavery, and let me say very, very briefly here, this I think is part of the problem. Our friend David believes that you can make a calculated uh, and clean, concise break between enslavement and Jim Crow, as if Jim Crow wasn't the dressing up, right? Um, in one sense, slavery was Superman. Jim Crow is Clark Kent. It's dressed up, it's got his glasses on, and the Lois Lanes are out there trying to service it in journalism. Okay, let me uh, end that metaphor before I get in trouble. So the point is <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's a continuation of the same thing. When we look at Douglas Blackman's book, Slavery by Another Name, that is the point that Jim Crow was an extension of enslavement, that Jim Crow was the extension America of American apartheid, and that it was extremely successful. It recruited every institution in America. And let me answer the question David didn't answer. When you look at steering, redlining, when you look at uh, segregated neighborhoods, when you look at banking practices, when you look at the degree to which institutions of higher education, not just the ones you're speaking of, when we talk about Latinos, African-Americans, and Asians at the, what, top 15%, maybe top 25 institutions of higher education, where the stuff goes down, where the metal, uh, where, where, where the rubber meets the road is in all of these state schools and all of these non-elite schools where the battle is being waged about access and the like. So for me, when I think about systemic inequity, when you look at everything that ends in system, public education system, criminal justice system, public health care system, systems don't depend upon individual animus, don't depend upon personal behavior, don't depend upon unconscious bias of individuals. David should not be flippant when it comes to it's laughable if it were his particular group, ethnicity, or association that is dying repeatedly, recursively in the streets, where the, where the fostered brutality of white supremacist logics, beliefs, epistemologies, worldviews, Weltanschauungen, and the whole range of thought that is brought to bear upon these black bodies. Why is it then that America is on the one hand acknowledging its need to address the systemic inequity and on the other hand, trying to deny through David that uh, those people are worthy and desirous of competing, but they have been systematically denied. I'll end by saying this. President Johnson said, if you've been denied access to a race and the skills it takes to run that race, and then all of a sudden you go, hey, everything's fair now. We're going to make the race fair. You get involved in one lane. You get involved in the other lane without saying, I haven't had the proper treatment, I haven't had the practice, I haven't had the ability to engage in all of the preparation that my counterparts have. So this, this racial ignorance is predicated upon historical amnesia that I think our good friend David continually uh, exemplifies here in our conversation. If we're gonna talk about the threat to black lives, it would seems to me that uh, the two main sources of death for black people in America are abortion and black on black crime. Uh, and yet we don't talk of that. We, we magnify the handful of instances of police brutality or of uh, some shooter uh, being crazy and committing a hate crime. Uh, why is that not part of the conversation? Blacks have the highest abortion rate in the country 
uh, and young black men have, uh, it, it, that is sad, is, is the murder rate. Second, you asked me you know, what I would do to help the condition of my fellow black American citizens. As I said, this is a very complex issue. I, I'm not gonna give you a little formula like, hey, it's reparations and it'll solve things. I would focus uh, not exclusively, but at least primarily on three areas. One would be uh, shoring up the black family. The out of wedlock birth rate, I believe, is around 74% right now. If you factor in the divorce rate, it probably means that something close to 90% of black kids in America are not growing up uh, with in a married, but with married parents. Second, I would focus on criminality. It is a sad fact that uh, <clears throat> African Americans comprise 13% of the population, commit about 50% of the murders, 70% of uh, the robberies. Uh, and third, I would focus on the dysfunctions of inner city black culture. So I'm not painting a broad sweep. We have a middle-class black America that is uh, bourgeois. Uh, we have black elites, but I see a deep dysfunction where there's a, I mean, this is Cornell West point. I mean, he, he dubbed it nihilistic and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, you can see it in the shift from soul music to rap, I realize I'm too young to sound like a stuffy old conservative who's <laughs> lamenting rap, and, and I realize how tired that is. But I mean, listen to the brutality, the vile nihilistic celebration of violence in the music compared to what, you know, in much harder circumstances, black Americans, the music was, you know, about aspirational bourgeois, I would say. So I'm not saying these are the only things uh, but I'm saying this is never part of the conversation. The conversation is always coddling, making excuses, and preferential treatment. Uh, first of all, he's still not, my good friend David, my lovely young man, is still not responding to your issue. He's, he's talking about what Black people should do. He said nothing yet about what America owes Black people. But let me address, nevertheless, those three significant points about the Black family. Destroyed under enslavement. Eviscerated under Jim Crow the denial of the ability to get married uh, from the very beginning, and then to penalize people for that marriage under welfare policy that stigmatized the presence of black men. And beyond that, 93% of black people who die are killed at the hands of other black people. Oh, but hold on for the news. 84% of white people who die are killed at the hands of white people. I don't hear David wringing his hands about, oh my God, Jiminy Cricket, the white family is going to hell in a handbasket and what are we going to do? Bring Jimmy Stewart in, let Mr. Smith go to Washington and let's legislate against that. Thirdly, in terms of inner city black culture, David, I love you. You are in many ways a polymath, but bruh, stick to your analysis of maybe, you know, Italian opera, bruh, because aspiration, have you looked at a rap video? We want cars, we want homes, we want money. We want to, Jay-Z is a billionaire. Uh, Master P talks about hustling. Uh, a, a conservative historian said that the central motif of American society is hustling. So Jay-Z, in many ways, is the greatest American in this particular era of capital accumulation, but for the purposes of both challenging uh, dominant culture. And if you're quoting Cornel West, don't just quote half of them. In that notion of nihilism, he's talking about the lethal persistence of white supremacy and the systemic denial of opportunity uh, that should be granted to black people. And then I'll end by saying this, you keep talking about lowering the standards. Ain't no lowering of the standards, sir. It is acknowledging that the false standards that were never applied to most white people. We know that there are 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of mediocre, incompetent, inarticulate bubbas who happen to be white boys who have gotten jobs because their uncles and cousins hooked them up. So when we talk about lowering standards, we got to begin with Donald Trump and the, 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 the kind of anti-meritocracy that prevailed that instantiated an example of the lethal mendacity and mediocrity that whiteness has conjured over many epics of history in this country. So God bless you for that, but there's a lot more to be said. We're gonna give David a chance to respond to all of that. Um, we also are gonna ask our panelists to come up with something that they actually agree about. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. This is the debate from Newsweek. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. So let's uh, let's go around the horn and, and wrap up here. David, I want to give you the first attempt here. Um, I, I, I do worry that your position is perhaps being slightly mischaracterized a bit. If I understand your position correctly, David, it's that because there is no, quote unquote, systemic racism at this point, we can certainly work around the edges, things like you've described. But at, at this point, what we owe our fellow citizens is the, are the fundamental protections of equal dignity under the law, the promises of the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, etc. So why don't you kind of just clarify your position, make sure the listeners understand exactly what it is you're saying here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I already said this. I mean, I want for my fellow black American citizens what I want for all, all other citizens, which means equality under the law, that the government should not be granting privileges to some uh, taking race into account in the enactment and enforcement of laws and in the adjudication of disputes. And then I, I broadly accept the idea of no explicit and purposeful uh, discrimination in the private sector. Uh, the issue then, of course, is how do you measure that discrimination? So no one explicitly discriminates. You're not allowed by law to do that. And so what the left has settled upon is the disparate uh, impact analysis, the argument that if blacks are underrepresented in any one realm of life, the only acceptable explanation is discrimination or the legacy of discrimination. So this is the Ibram Kendi position, you know, stated with marvelous simplicity, where I see disparities, I see discrimination. So there's only one acceptable explanation all the time, dogmatically asserted. And by the way, if you disagree with that explanation, you're a racist. No, uh, Michael uh, did not say that, but this is Kendi's position. You're either an anti-racist and you agree with the entire agenda of racial grievances, demonizing white people, preferential treatment for blacks. And if you don't, if you believe that all men are created equal, that they should be treated equally under the law, you're a racist. This is what it's come down to uh, in America today. The last thing I'll say is, you know, if we're looking at the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, one, discomf one problematic fact for Michael's analysis is that in many regards, not in all regards, Blacks were faring better in the 50s in America compared to whites than they are today. That, you know, Thomas Sowell has pointed out that the black unemployment rate was lower than the white unemployment rate in the 50s. So part of, I think, what we need to understand happened is that the 60s happened. 
And by the 60s, I mean, broadly speaking, the cultural deregulation, elites no longer preaching a bourgeois ethic of marriage and work and delayed gratification, and then the pernicious incentives of the welfare state that reward single motherhood and in certain cases, idleness. It hit all Americans. I think it hit Black Americans hardest because their communities were the most fragile because of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that it's the weakest parts of society that needs the strongest props from the government and the culture to do the right thing. So it has hit whites too, uh, but it has hit blacks particularly hard. And I don't think it helps the conversation to exclusively and monomaniacally focus on the past. And by the past, I mean slavery and Jim Crow and its legacy. So we're we're just so grateful to you both for having this conversation with us. There's so few places left where people actually gather to debate such important topics. Um, that said, I want to end us off on a note of agreement. I wonder if you could each tell us something that you are convinced that your partner on this panel agrees with you about. Let's start with you, Michael. Well, I, I got to respond very briefly uh, to what my good friend David has uh, articulated here. Again, Gore Vidal, I'm sure he'll agree with this, <laughs> said we live in the United States of amnesia. I would say that the theme song of Supply by Barbara Streisand was too painful to remember. We simply choose to forget. And so the deliberate denial of reality, the resentment of the inconvenient memories that are transmitted uh, historically have to be acknowledged here. Um, I'm sure there would be many areas of agreement uh, between us, sparsely perhaps, but vigorously in some instances. Um, but at the end of the day, the inability to acknowledge the wrong that has been done leads to a kind of resentment uh, to acknowledge that it ain't just the official stuff, it's the unofficial stuff. It's the informal stuff. It's the stuff that is the folklore and mythology, not simply the empirically verifiable uh, practices. But I will say this very quickly before answering your question. The point is, when you say that there's no discrimination, it's illegal now, that's why they have lawsuits that are continually going on. The housing department finally had to acknowledge two years ago that there was a systematic effort to undermine and legitimately deny valid housing to black people, despite the law passing in 1968. So my friend, if we want to speak about adjudic adjudicating competing claims, let's also talk about adjudicating uh, completing rational schemes of what is defensible and indefensible when it comes to talking about race in America and the particular problems that black people confront. Where we agree, I think we both agree that David should stick to uh, maybe uh, a different form of music to make analogies uh, in regard to, uh, <laughs> to enslavement. Uh, but, I, but I hope we both agree that he's a sharp and insightful young man, uh, I think misled on many of these issues but nonetheless a worthy conversation partner in the process. Let me just push back a little bit, Michael. I want you to come up with something that you are certain he agrees with you about on this topic in terms of, you know, African-Americans, rights, America, equality. Because there, there, to me, it seems like there's so much that unites you and, and a question of where the legacy of slavery ends, mm -hmm. you know, a well, temporal semantic one almost that divides you. Right. Well... It's probably more substantive than semantic, but let's talk about S.I. Hayakawa and what his contribution could be to this uh, particular situation semantically. Look, there's no doubt that we both want a society where race doesn't ruin the possibility of engagement. We both want a society 
where unity prevails. But unity is the bridge. Justice is the destination, right? We don't celebrate, oh my God, it's the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Isn't it amazing? No, we celebrate John Lewis, who walked across that bridge to get to a better destination. So what I want to see happen is that the obstacles and impediments get removed. We both, I think, want to head in the same direction. We have different routes to get there. David? Uh, I think we both agree that for most of our nation's history, uh, Blacks were horribly mistreated. Uh, and I think we both agree that today, um, we would like to improve the lot and well-being of our fellow Black American citizens. Uh, we disagree about the legacy of the past and the extent to which it still is holding Blacks today. We disagree about the extent to which America still has not paid a debt for the past. And then we disagree about uh, how to help our fellow Black American citizens today. But I, I think we disagreed in a uh, uh, fairly civil way. Um, and, and that, you know, is uh, these days is, uh, is becoming rare and rare in America. I think I, I totally agree with that. So um, on that note, I think that's a great way to, to sign us off here. This was really enlightening. Uh, I think we it took a very heated and emotionally fraught topic and discussed this and debated it quite civilly. So David Azrad and Michael Eric Dyson, thank you so much for joining Newsweek's The Debate. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I, nice. I need to make one correction. You keep on calling me a young man. I'm 43 years old. I'm old. Look at this. What, what young man? I wish I were a young man. I'm 62, bro. You're a young man. Yeah, but, yeah, but you, look, no, <laughs> you look much better than I do. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's why we're going to stay friends, homie. That's yeah. why we're going to stay friends. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So, Badia, yeah, just you and I to wrap up here. How do you think that went? Oh, wow. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought both sides were extremely strong. And even though the topic is really sort of it kind of boils your blood, you get heated up. Um, I think they they really debated it in a civil manner. And I especially loved how they kind of came back together at the end and realized that, you know, there was a lot that they agreed upon. What What about you? Yeah, no, look, I mean, it was a very lively exchange. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled that we've got, we had them both to write their very uh, thought-provoking pieces and had them both on the podcast here. Um, you know, Michael brings a, uh, a pastor's energy that is difficult to match sometimes, <laughs> something that I've also noticed from his various Meet the Press appearances over the years. Um, yeah, look, I thought David held his ground uh, just totally fine there, um, made a lot of the same arguments that uh, I myself have made in my own uh, writings on this issue. So I kind of obviously naturally gravitate towards that. Um, but my, Michael's passion, very, 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 very difficult to uh, to match or surpass that passion there. Kind of just uh, I, 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 I suspect a lot of our listeners are kind of will come away, focus more on kind of just the energy and the passion, uh, perhaps perhaps even more so than the substantive arguments, although I kind of hope that's not true. But we'll see. The thing that I think uh if I could just pinpoint what I would say the key debate between them is about. They both acknowledge that, you know, slavery was this huge original sin, horrible, like indescribable evil. They both acknowledge that there are still problems um, in today's America with all citizens having the level of equality and dignity that we would wish upon them. And I think there, the debate is really about can a, uh, can a solution that's tagged to the evil of slavery be the right solution to the problem of today so many years later? 
Do you, do you agree with me uh, with that assessment? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're talking about reparations for something that happened over 150 years ago. We're talking about an America in the year 2021 that has gone out of its way, whether it's the media, whether the whether it's the academy, whether it's the Fortune 500, whether it's big law firms, whether it's Wall Street, whether it is any institution imaginable has gone out of its way for preferential black treatments that discriminates against Asian Americans and other various minorities. And the question now is, whether because of one-off anecdotes like George Floyd in Minneapolis, no matter how horrendous they are, whether we in America are still, quote-unquote, systemically racist. Put my cards on the table. I personally agree with David that this is a laughable, uh, a statistically incoherent uh, position. Uh, it is not uh, justified by any data whatsoever that I have ever seen. Um, but uh, you know what? I understand that people still feel really strongly about this, and I was just so happy that we had some people on here to present both sides of it. Yeah, and I, and I have to say that to me, the idea that there was, that there is, there remains a moral debt that needs to be paid off is is a really compelling one. Especially as the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, there is a moral angle where I, as a white American, white Jewish American, crave paying it off. And so, to me, it seems like a a, a reasonable way to do it. But I I agree with you. It was such a great debate and. Uh, they, they really got at the heart of the matter. And thank you all for joining us here. We actually now have an email address, thedebateatnewsweek.com. Please write to us. Tell us who won. For Newsweek, she's by Yungar Sargon. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. <laughs>